When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the fields, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on you'll be a hopeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, No, for I'll give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning as we stir up faith in our heart to respond to the preaching of your word. I pray, would you silence the enemy's voice in our lives? And would you reveal to every heart, my heart included, a fresh understanding of the abundant life that you have purchased for us? I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you turn to somebody next to you very quickly and tell them, I'm not leaving the same way I came. Come on, tell them with faith. Come on. A little background of the story if you're unfamiliar. This is deep. You might want to write this down. But Genesis 4 takes place after Genesis 3. Yeah. Preach it, Gabe. Amen. Wow. But it's significant to understand that it's what is colloquially called and known as, uh, theologically understand as, as the fall. The moment where God had created Adam and Eve, the prototype human, uh, human, human beings who were going to be our, that all of humanity would find us descension from. And this moment in Genesis 1 and 2, they were handed, in essence, abundant life. Fullness of life with God and humanity. Everything was theirs. They were told to have dominion over it. And they had divine access and relationship with God in a way that no one has known since up till these moments that we're going to talk about today. But this profound moment of abundant life was surrendered because why? There is an enemy. And then Genesis 3, he makes his appearance and he tells them, he comes and seduces them away, not just to make themselves uncomfortable, not to make their, their, their lives a little bit tougher, but to steal, kill and destroy the abundant life that God had for them. And they surrender that by, by disobeying what God has spoken and, 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 and listening to the voice of the enemy. Eve took the fruit and put into motion a series of events which would, would lead to the destruction of the human race and their relationship with God. And this incredible moment of pain and anguish, though, had a glimmer of hope in it. As God came, as they were naked and ashamed and trying to hide from God, and, uh, and God comes and clothes them, and he calls it and it speaks uh, into their, their story. He calls Satan, and God says to Satan, says, Satan, I want to tell you, though you've won, you think you've won the battle today, there's a greater victory still lying ahead. From this woman, even though this woman in her sin has made this happen, from this woman, the seed of hope will arise. 
You will see they will come from her womb, they will crush your head. And this glimmer of hope, this flicker of hope, this kindling of hope starts to alight in their hearts. Though amidst all their sin and shame, there's this hope. From her womb shall come a savior, someone who will crush the enemy's head. So chapter 4 dawns, and you can imagine the joy as they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And they're like, almost, maybe it's one of these ones who will crush the enemy's head. Maybe it's one of these sons. One of, maybe one generation, that's all it'll take, they'll be able to move on. But this is where we find the story of Cain and Abel happen. They have two sons, and this, this moment comes in the narration that we just read. We, where they come before God, these two sons, Cain, who works the soil, who's a farmer, a man of agriculture. And he's worked the soil, and he's got all his crops, and he comes and brings a sacrifice to God from the fruit of his labor. And Abel, who comes and he slaughters, uh, the first, he's a, he's a, he's a man of, of, who rears sheep, and he kills a sheep, an unblemished firstborn sheep, and brings it to God and says, this is my sacrifice. And then we get to this moment where God seems to be pleased with one and, and not happy with the other. At plain reading, you might be excused to think that gives the case that God was not a vegan. Just saying. He was not happy with Cain's uh, vegetables. He wasn't happy. Broccoli sprouts. What is this? It's just a joke. But actually, there's something greater going on here. Greater than just actually what is, what is God's preference. Greater than actually even man's sacrifice in this moment. What is, what, hey, which one was right, which one was wrong. There's something greater going on in the first moment out of the garden that God is trying to put into place in this moment. And I want to help us with two big headings this morning to make sense of it. The first one is understanding the concept of grace versus striving. Grace versus striving. You see... It's a question that probably will plague all of our hearts at one time or other, maybe a perpetual uh, plaguing, if I'm honest, of this, this voice in our heads will say, have I done enough? Have I done enough? There's one theologian who wrote this quote once, he said this, the greatest temptation in life is to think it is by further, better, and more aggressive living that we can find life. That's the greatest temptation. That the enemy actually will, will lie to us and to seduce us and put us on a hamster wheel trying to run or, or, the, or the athletic version of a hamster wheel, a treadmill. We will have to sweat and toil and, and push and strain and put a whole lot of effort but never really get anywhere. We're running and running and running and always feel, have I done enough? Have, and we're looking across at other people, have I, have I done more than that person? I'm falling short in this way. What about in my marriage? I could have done a bit more there. What about this? Is God pleased with me? And the enemy loves to keep us on this rat, rat race, running again more and more and more. And almost whispering in our ears, you need to do more. You need to be more. You need to consume more. And keeping us on this rat race again and again and again. And that's where we find our two boys in the center of the story, Cain. And what's so enabled, what's so profound about Cain. His name literally means produced or acquired. So Cain's name literally means produced or acquired. From the sweat of his brow, he produced and acquired all these crops. He, he watered and he sowed and, he, and he, then he reaped and he cultivated all these crops. He brought them to God and said, look what I've done for you. Look how amazing is my effort here. Here it is, God. But God wasn't pleased with that effort. Because he's doing something deeper here. Because Abel's name, profoundly, Abel's name means breath. Or nothing. Which I think is a great description for a Saturday afternoon. <sighs> and nothing. <laughs> Cain's name is produced and acquired. Abel's name, they, they try to read it, they go, it either means bread or could mean just nothing. And Abel comes and he, he doesn't, he just looks after the sheep, he chooses one, the best one, kills it and brings it to God and says, well, I don't really do much, but here it is, God, giving it to you. And what's going on here at a deeper level, if we can push past through the strange story, if we're honest, we realize that God is putting in place a precedent 
that man's ability to produce and to sweat and to push effort, make effort towards him would never be enough. He's putting at a greater level a precedent that, the, that only the blood of a lamb would be enough. Mm. You see, if we look at scripture, scripture I believe is actually all about one thing. It's, it's proclaiming one message. Every story at the heart of it, if you push through all the ins and outs of every page of your Bible, is declaring the blood is enough. Let me help you understand it this morning in, in the way that I made sense of it. Is that the story, Genesis 4, we park it there for a while, but we slip a few pages, we get to Genesis 22. A man named Abraham. And God has said, Abraham, though you are barren, you and your wife cannot have kids, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham and, and, and his, his, his wife Sarah, they, 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 they try, they wait for years and years and years. Eventually they fall pregnant and have the son called Isaac. The son of promise. And I can imagine he started to plot and Abraham started to go, we've got one son. Okay, who can we hook Isaac up with? They'll have the best fertility and then we'll just get kids. And, gonna, and he starts plotting out how we're going to populate the planet from our family. This is going to be amazing. He's so thrilled and starts to going from Isaac who's going to come these generations and grandkids and great grandkids. And this will be how God's promise will be made up. This will do it. We'll do it. God, we're doing well together. And God says, okay, let's shut this down, Abraham. Abraham, yes, I gave you a son Isaac and I said I've given you a promise, but the promise is not going to come about from the fruit of your hands. Mm. I want you to know it's not going to come from your sweat and your production ability and the way that you can acquire things. So he says, in Genesis 22, he says, Abraham, take your son Isaac, your only son, the son of promise, the son that's going to lead you into the promise and destiny that I have for you, the abundant life. Take him and sacrifice him to me. Mm. Genesis 22. Now straight away on the, on, the, on, the, on the outside, we go again, we go, God, what is going on in the story? Are you a God who's about infanticide, about killing our children? This, what, what, we wrestle with this. What is God on about? No, no, hold on for a second. God is on a bigger mission trying to tell us that we'll never please Him, never, never get to Him through the sweat and the production of our own ability. Mm. He said there's a greater principle at work. So Abraham obeys God, gets to the top of a mountain, ties his son Isaac on the altar, and is about to obey God, saying, God, I trust you that even if I kill my son, you will raise him to life again, and you will populate the earth through me. God, I trust you more than my ability, more than my sweat, more than my, my ability to make this thing happen. He's about to kill his son, and God stops and says, Abraham! He stops, he says, wait! He says, Abraham, take your son off the altar. In the thicket, there's a ram. A lamb, and I want you to take that lamb. I want you to tie that lamb in, Abraham, in, in Isaac's place and kill that as a sacrifice to me. And again, we start to see the, the plot of God at work. He says that actually there's a lamb that will be the substitute for Isaac. One lamb for one man. You keep reading. In the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, there's this, this narrative where the people of God have been taken enslaved and gone down to Egypt. And for 400 years, their whole identity is that of Cain, is that of working, of sweating, of their production value just, uh, leads to their worth. They labor over bricks, they sweat, they toil, working for a hard taskmaster called Pharaoh, who's driving them to produce more, be more, consume more, make more. And then this, this hamster wheel is trembled. But then God says, I'm going to come and deliver you. And to their mind, I can imagine, they're going to see the deliverer God. We're going to take on the might of Egypt. We've got hundreds of thousands of Israelites here. We can actually rise up. Maybe there's going to be a people's rebellion. And this, this the deliverer will lead us to go up to the, the pyramids and take down Pharaoh, plunder the palace, and, and we'll rule in this land. We'll do it because we're strong. We've worked hard. And God goes, no, no, it's not going to be through your might. not going to be through your uprising. I'm going to deliver you. You just have to watch and see. And the, the, the crux of the story reaches hidden in Exodus 12, where Moses gives the people this instruction. He says, Tonight you're going to see the hand, the deliverance of your God. 
But actually what I'm needing you to do is every family needs to kill a lamb, a firstborn lamb, unblemished lamb, take that blood, put it on the door frame of their homes. Because he said tonight, the angel of the Lord is going to come over every home in Egypt. And he's going to go to the homes that do not have the blood of the lamb on their doors. The firstborn sons of those homes will be killed. And can you imagine in that moment, just the, the terror that would have reached people. People would have said, Moses, we've seen God's mighty hand through all the plagues. We know he's not kidding. Is that all you've told, he's told you to tell us? Put the blood on the door. Is that all? Because if I'm putting my family's safety at risk, is that the only instruction you've been given? Moses, that's all I've got. Surely there's something else we need to do. Surely we need to pray a prayer. Surely we need to do some type of dance. Surely we need to give some offering to God as well, just to make sure. Hedge our bets. God says, Moses, that's all I've got. Put the blood on the door. So at night, they do that. They put all the blood on the door. And I, I think about the story. I don't know about you. I start having questions. What type of God? What's going on here? No, God is driving something deeper here. But I think about my family. Fiona, Olivia, Benjamin. In our street, we sing there. And I, I imagine the one night we've heard this. We've put the blood on our door. And we're standing there. And we're waiting. And we're waiting. We're like, this is strange. This is weird. But then all along down our street, I start hearing screams echoing out. Ah! As a family down the road who didn't have the blood on their doors, their, their firstborn son was killed. They see them. And terror starts to rise up the streets. And I start to hold on to Olivia and Benjamin. I hold on to Fiona and I go, please may this be enough. Please may this be enough. Surely there's something more I had to do. Is this enough? And then I feel the whisper of death come over our home, see the blood, and then move on over. As the wrath of God has moved over our home because of the blood. We see in the scripture, we see it in Genesis 22, one lamb for one man. In Exodus 12, one lamb for one family. Keep reading the book of Leviticus. We've told us understanding around the tabernacle is that once a year the nation of Israel would come and they'll bring, for the sake of this, the whole nation's sin, they'll bring an unblemished lamb. And the high priest would put his hands on that lamb and put, put impute all the sins of the nation into this lamb. And then they'll kill that lamb. And you see the principle in Genesis 22, one lamb for one man. Exodus 12, one lamb for one family. In Leviticus, it was one lamb represented for one for the whole nation. The story is moving. And then we get to the, the head of it, it's in John chapter 1, where we see a man named John the Baptist. And he looks out and he sees Jesus. And, and the people have been waiting for Messiah. And again, they're under the oppression of Roman rule. And they, they, they're being squashed. And they, their whole livelihood is being, is being, being stretched out. And they, they don't know how we're going to get victory. But they hear someone's coming. The Messiah is coming. And if you ask them, what, what will that look like? Even in the disciples' head, they obviously would imagine the Messiah would come and lead us in rebellion against Rome. We'll go and plunder the, 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 the high places. We'll take down the Roman power, see the power, and then we'll rule and reign here with the Messiah. We'll take them on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. But John the Baptist looks out and prophetically, he sees Jesus walking out. He's the first one to say it. He sees Jesus walking towards him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God yeah. who takes away the sins of the world. One Lamb for one family. One man left, one man. One lamb for one family. One lamb for one nation. And Jesus we have one lamb for the entire world. I want to tell you, the blood of the lamb is always enough. Yeah. It's always enough. So much so, we read in a story in Genesis, we're reading about Cain and Abel. When God comes and confronts Cain and says, what have you done? What have you done? You've killed your brother. And he says, God says to Cain, he says, the blood of your brother cries out vengeance to you. It cries out for vengeance. But here's the amazing thing, if you keep reading the scripture, in Hebrews 12 verse 24, scripture says this, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. So what does that mean? 
The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It means when Abel's blood cried out for its vengeance, Jesus' blood, when it was shed on the cross, cries out for forgiveness. It cries out for mercy. It cries out for grace on our behalf, though we do not deserve it. It cries out a better word. Why this is powerful for you and I, sir and ma'am, this morning I want to tell you, is that when the enemy comes, and he will come, and he'll whisper in your ear, you could have done more for your kids. He'll whisper in your ear things like, if only you had been there, X, Y, and Z wouldn't have happened. If only you had made that phone call. If only you had tried harder. If only you had pitched up more. He'll say things, you don't deserve an abundant marriage. You don't deserve an abundant future. You don't deserve an abundant relationship with God. I want to tell you today, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Yeah, it speaks a better word. A word that of, of courage and life. A better word than the blood of Abel's. And we've got to hear it. What is so profound is when Jesus on this earth performed incredible miracles. Miracles that astounded the people. And then also he taught incredible sermons. He taught incredible principles and teachings that hold the world still captivated. But the amazing thing with every miracle that happened and every great sermon and illustration and teaching that happened, the veil in the temple was not torn. The veil in the temple that separated man from God stood fully erect, fully lifted high from top to bottom, sewn together, not torn. The miracles didn't tore the veil. The teachings didn't tear the veil. But the moment he died on the cross and his blood was shed, the veil was torn from top to bottom, making the way open for anyone to come to the Father. The blood tore the veil. The blood did it. It's only the blood of Jesus that is enough for you and I. I say it again. Billy Graham said it better this way, actually. When interviewed and asked, if you had it all to do again, Billy, what would you change? He thought a little bit and said this. If I had it all to do again, I'd only preach the blood of Jesus and his finished work on the cross. That's where the power is. You see, as we keep reading the book of Jude, the the, the New Testament prophet, he, he, he gives out a warning. He says, beware the way of Cain. Beware the way of Cain. And what is he saying? He's not talking about the base level. Beware, don't murder your brothers. Helpful hint. Write that down if you want. But what he's actually saying at a deeper level, he's saying beware the way of trusting your own efforts. Beware the way of trusting your own self-righteousness or your own even self-condemnation. Beware the way of Cain where you think it's by your, what you produce, what you put effort in, what you sweat, you'll achieve God's favor. And his blessing, his abundant life. I tell you today, sir, ma'am, it's not a righteousness required, it's a righteousness supplied. Amen. He does not bang the pulpit of heaven saying, Be holy, for I am holy. He calls us into a relationship with Him because His blood has made a way for those people who are not holy to be called holy and blameless in His sight. Yeah. I want to tell you, grace versus striving, the blood of the Lamb is always enough. Secondly, and finally this morning, grace versus sin. Maybe a better question for you and I this morning. Have I done too much? Maybe you sing here and you, you play replaying conversation in your head and you say, oh, I can never have that back again. You were playing moments on your own. You were playing sins and habits and, and, and things that you wish you could have back. And you, or you, you feel that your life is disqualified by something in your past, something that repeated that you cannot get over, something you can't undo. You have that question deep in your soul, have I done too much? Can I tell you, if, it, if you don't have that question at some level in your life, you've got to go back to point number one and say, actually, you think you're better than you are. You think that your gift is better than you are, but actually the understanding is, I think the problem for Christianity is many of us here, no matter how long we've walked with God, we're experts at singing Amazing Grace, but terrible at living Amazing Grace. 
We're brilliant at seeing it and declaring it, and we know it here. But actually, we think at some base level, we are disqualified of abundant life because of something we've done. We're disqualified of abundant marriage because of something we've done. We're disqualified from abundant emotions because of things we've done. We're disqualified from these things because of things that we have done. I'm here to tell you today that it couldn't be further from the truth. Let me help, help us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 will be on the screen behind me. The scripture says this way in the NIV. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. It says if anyone. Is there anyone here? Someone who's in anyone. Can I see the hand? I see that one here. Come on. Anyone. Anyone. Come on. We carry back. I see the hand. It's good news. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Now that is great news, but I want to tell you it gets even better when you understand what the depth of that scripture. You see the, 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 the writer there, who they could have translated that word in different ways. That word new, the new has come, the new is here. They could have used the word neos. And that word neos basically means new but upgraded. Now we are people in the 21st century who know a thing or two about upgrades. We know, iPhone 10, bring on the iPhone 11. We know Hyundai i10, give me the i20. You know, we, just, we, know I, we know economy class, business class, an upgrade. Everyone loves a good upgrade. But the essence of an upgrade is that it's the same, but improved. The same, but a little bit better. The same, but a little bit quicker. The same, but a little bit, a little bit more, an upgrade. So often we view our lives like that. We think we come to Christ as the old is gone, but the upgrade has come. I'm still the same person with the same brokenness and the same baggage and the same history and the same enemy defeating me. But you know, I'm slightly better now. At least I, I, I lose my temper three out of ten times. And, and I'm, you know, we have these excuses and we start. But that's not what the scripture uses. The truth of the Bible doesn't say the old is gone, the upgrade has come. Gabe 2.0, the slightly better version of himself is here. No, it uses the word kairos, which means this incredible word. It says, the brand spanking never seen before new has come. The old is gone, the kairos has come. The old is gone, the brand new has come. Now we're doing work. I hope you guys are getting excited because things are going to get exciting in here. Kairos can also be translated, not just brand spanking new, can also be translated appointed or promised. Amen. So if we read it in that light, it says, The old is gone, the appointed and promised has come. Beautiful. You say it again? The appointed and promised. Can you say it with me? Say, appointed, appointed and promised. Promise. Appointed and promised. Put a pin in there because we, we're getting somewhere. Back to Genesis chapter 4, we realize that because of Eve's sin, God said, The seed, will, seed from your womb will come. But it does seem like all hope has been lost as Cain kills Abel. And then Cain goes on a rampage and he walks away from God and he lives in rebellion. And actually things are spiraled out of control. You watch Grey's Anatomy and you think that is bad and hectic? Nothing on the Bible. Just chaos erupts. Obviously, godly people do not watch Grey's Anatomy. Sorry. Maybe <laughs> better. Days of our lives. Ah, a few generations back. There we go. But we see Cain... If you follow his little genealogy in Genesis 4, six generations later of chaos, six generations from Eve. So from Eve, she her hope was one generation, but six generations later, it's just it's now gone to a whole new level. Sin is erupting like never before. One murder has led to countless of murders. We get to Cain's great, great, great grandson named Lamech. He doesn't get much of a story in the Bible, but he does get this one moment. Lamech says this in Genesis chapter 4, if you go read it at home, he boasts when he kills somebody, in the light, in the, in the vein of Cain, he kills a couple of people, and we see it's a bit of a track record. What he declares, he says, if Cain, basically paraphrases, if Cain's revenge was seven times, 
when he was slighted, my revenge is 70 times 7. That's how he boasts in his sin. He boasts in his revenge. He boasts in his depravity. But what is so profound when you see this family that's gone so far south, that has gone to pot, that has now fallen apart and seems like no hope? You just have to start looking with eyes into the New Testament. When a man named Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm feeling offended and slighted. How many times do I have to forgive someone who keeps deliberately offending and slighting me? And Jesus, at random, apparently it seems, mm -hmm. says, you need to forgive somebody 70 times 7 times. You've read that, you go, oh, what does that mean? Second time it's appeared in the Bible. First time was in Genesis 4, to illustrate the depth of Lamech's sin. When Jesus says it, he says, I'm demonstrating to show you the depth of my forgiveness. Amen. 70 times 7. Wait a minute, it's getting better. Hold your horses, hold your horses, we're getting good here. You see, in this amazing story, Eve's sin and failure starts to be rewritten in the hands of a merciful God. You see, Cain meant uh, produced and acquired. Abel meant breath or nothing. But if you keep reading it, and at the end of Genesis 4, we have this little moment that says, Adam knew Eve again. They, had, they basically had sexual relations again. Eve felt pregnant again. And this time, a third son, she named Seth. Now, what is so profound about Seth? The name Seth means... Appointed or promised. The old is gone. The appointed or promised is coming. Seth's name, where her hope was in Abel or Cain, but Abel is dead. Cain has uh, fled. But where was our hope coming from? We see that God says, I'm going to rewrite something new. The old is gone. The new has come. Let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 5 will be on the screen. You see in Genesis chapter 5, the story goes on. One, just one chapter after this depravity. Says, this is the written account of Adam's family line. But wait a minute. No, but Adam's already started his family line. No, no, no. God says, I'm writing it from now. He says, when God created mankind, he made him in the likeness of God. You see this incredible thing. He created male and female and blessed him. And he named him mankind. What is God doing? He's taking him back to Genesis 1. He's starting the, over, over the story of fresh. Then he says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Oh. No, he had Cain and Abel. Where are they? The old is gone. The appointed, the promised has come. Yeah. Sure. The story starts to be rewritten. Eve's sin starts to be re-navigated. Oh, it gets better. Luke chapter 3. The story doesn't end. Luke chapter 3, if we go to it. Oh, I love myself a genealogy. <laughs> now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Nathan, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janah, the son of Joseph, the son of Nathathias, the son of Amos. You get the picture. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> The son of Joshua, the son of Elysia, the son of Joram, the son of Matthew, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph. You get the picture. Let's keep reading. Next one. The son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Saruk, the son of Ruth, the son of Pelech, the son of Eber. I feel like a rapper right now. <laughs> the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Al. Ah, yeah, that one. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kedah, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth. Jesus came from the line of Seth. The appointed and promised seed did not come from Cain, from what they produced and sweated. Not from Abel, where I've gone too far. It came from the thirdborn, Seth. Now why is this massive for you and I? Because I tell you, the enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, he heard the voice in the garden say, a seed will come, will crush your head. So he watched over every seed. And he's crouched at the door of Cain and he enticed him to sin. And Cain went over and killed Abel. And in one fell swoop, he thought, I've dealt a death knell to the seed. Done. But then it fell pregnant again. 
hope arose again. And for the generation after generation, Satan followed these people. A list of people who were not grandiose or amazing or significant in their own right. I promise you not. Even Lamech gets a little headline in there. But this moment that he comes and they start looking at the story and they start seeing this thing develop. Satan starts to crush the life out of every generation. But then they'll, and, they'll, and they'll try and produce and the people, he'll take them on a journey and the people will fall into the trap of, we've got to try hard to get the abundant life. And he puts them on the, the treadmill, the treadmill. But then they fall short, so they feel terrible. And say, we've gone too far. And he goes, yes, I've got them again. But then they think they're going to pick themselves up and they try again. And this whole this thing of striving and sin and striving and sin, never making it forward, feeling that we're tired and getting broken and belabored and we can't move forward any longer. Does that sound like anyone's life here? But then Jesus is born. And Satan gets a bit nervous. And he starts watching this, this, this man, Jesus, start to be born. And Jesus does all these miracles. And when he sees the miracles happen, Jesus, Satan's getting nervous. So Satan runs and looks at the veil. The veil's still erected. Thank goodness. They can't come to the Father. Thank goodness I've got this. Then Jesus starts delivering incredible teachings. And he's like, oh my gosh, that is, um, he's telling them the way of the kingdom. But he runs back to the veil. It's still erected. Thank goodness. They can't get it. Then he sees Jesus die. On the cross. And as Jesus dies, he says, It is finished! All the demons in hell raise a shout and says, It is finished indeed. Genesis 3 is finally over. The seed has been crushed. We have crushed him, Satan. No longer is there a threat. Humanity has surrendered their only last hope for victory. But Satan was unusually quiet. This is not in the Bible. This is stick with me. My, my imagination, because I can imagine on the day, Satan knew the promise. That morning on Friday, as Jesus died, he picked up the phone and dialed death 666. Yeah. <laughs> said, death! And so death goes, hey Satan, haven't heard from you in a long time, man. What are you calling about? Just want to check. Have you just, have you just uh, has the body of Jesus of Nazareth arrived yet? He goes, yep, I'm looking at it right now. Dead as a doorknob, right here. Jesus of Nazareth, dead, done. What can I help you with? Just want to check. I'm a bit nervous, but just want to make sure he is dead. So death's like, Satan, I'm good at this. I've been doing this for a long time, buddy. Leave me alone, go enjoy your party. Cool, sorry, dear. Thank you, thank you. Saturday morning, Satan wakes up. He's a little bit concerned still. He's, let me just check one more time. Oh, dear. Six, six, six. Hey, dear, just want to make sure. Say, Jesus still there? He's like, Satan, Satan, Satan. Buddy, get off my back. I've been working hard, long days. Yes, he's dead. He hasn't moved. Nothing's changed. He's dead. Says, I'm being silly, I'm being silly. Thank you so much. Just checking. <laughs> Sunday happens. Death phone Satan. Says, uh, Satan, um, Jesus is uh, sat right up and uh, he's looking at me right now with a look that I've never seen before. And Satan starts to panic and Satan starts to shout on the phone, Death, you hold him. You do not let him leave that place. Death, you hold him. You lay your hands on him and you hold him. That sun cannot rise again. That sea cannot rise again. Death, you hold him. But we know that death could not hold him. Amen. Come on. We know that Jesus rose in power. From that moment, the seed rose to life. The seed that was laid in the ground, the promise, the appointed time had come. And now sons and daughters were led to glory. Because now the old was gone, the new has come. And the Satan has just looked. The veil had been torn, never to be stitched up again. So that we can come in with boldness and confidence. Whether you think, have I done enough? Or have I done too much? It's not about you, sir, ma'am. It's about Jesus. And as he lives, so are we in this world. Amen. This is the good news of the gospel. Can we stand at this moment and pray?
I really firmly believe this morning, I don't know why you came here this morning, but I believe this is an appointed and promised time for sons and daughters. For people who have labored under the guilt of have I done enough? The people who have labored under the shame have I done too much? The people have this gnawing sense that I'm always running on a treadmill and I'm never being able to make forward. I'm always laboring with this depression. I'm always laboring with this sin. I'm always laboring with this fear, this anxiety. I don't know how to do it. Do I need to, give me the secret? What more do I need to do? What more do I need to repent from? What, what bloodline do I have to cut off? I want to tell you today, sir, your hope, your abundant life is only in the blood of Jesus. Yeah. It's only in the blood of Jesus. It's your appointed time, your promised time. Can we lift our hands if that's all right in this moment? Right now, as we are here in this room, I want to tell you, sir, here, that... All of heaven is poised towards your heart right now. And we have a Father who seeks you. No matter how far you've run, no matter how far hard you've hardened your heart, we have a Father who seeks and searches out, who runs, and when you think your sin has gone far, His grace goes further still. Not only do we have a Father who seeks you, we have a Father who runs after you. Surely His goodness and mercy will chase you. Hound you down all the days of your life. I'm going to tell you today, sir, man, maybe you say, I, I, I'm too ashamed to come back to church. I'm too guilty to, I don't, I don't know where, maybe I've got to pay, do some penance. Maybe it's snakes and ladders. Let me start at the beginning again. No, sir, man, today is your appointed day. Today is your promised day. It's not now Cain 2.0. It's not Abel 2.0. Today is the day of set, the day of promise and appointed because we hold a hold of Jesus. Right now, I pray, Father God, for your blood to come soak into every heart, every sin-sick soul. I thank you, Father. In every addiction, your blood speaks a better word, breaks off every chain. I thank you, Father God, not another preach needs to be preached, not not another moment of confession needs to have right now. We just have to say, Jesus, you are enough. You are enough. You are enough. If we can lower our hands very briefly right now, with every eye closed, I really felt, woke up this morning with the word in my heart that prodigals are coming home today. The people who have been running from God are coming home today. Today, with no one looking around, if you are saying, Jesus, I've been running from you, and I need to come home today. I need to come home to, to this. I've been trusting myself. I've been trying to make plans. I've been trying to put bandages on the wounds. I've been trying to just do the treadmill thing, but I'm tired, and I need you, Jesus. I thank you that you meet them with a smile, with delight. With a celebration that they have not known before. I thank you, Father. Today is the day of new beginnings. Today is the day of appointed times and promise come to be. If you today are somebody who's been running from Jesus and you say, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, I need to come home today. I'm going to ask you to do something bold. Lift your hand high for me to see. Only me so I can pray for you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Is there anyone else? So it's a bold moment. It's a bold moment. As we lift our hands, we say, Jesus, I need your grace. It's a humbling moment, but it's a day of surrender so his life can flow. Amen. Father, I pray for these three hands, and I thank you, Father, more significantly for their hearts. Yeah. God, would you breathe your life like nothing else can? Yeah. Would you breathe your life like no other promises can? Would you breathe your life no, no, like no other efforts and energy and trusting my own self can? Like, would you breathe your life and do what only you can do? Jesus, I thank you for each of these people. Your blood is enough, yes. and silence is the voice of the enemy. Yes. And it releases the abundant life of heaven. Amen. I decree and declare this in Jesus' name. Jesus name. Amen. Amen.